This morning is Reformation Sunday, and uh, this is a day when we remember again that human institutions always fall. The uh, second law of thermodynamics doesn't apply to nature and is insignificant when it comes to human institutions. And that there was a time in which the church herself needed to be reformed. I think I can safely say that uh, most Roman Catholics today, if they were honest with us, would tell us that the Reformation was a good thing and that the church needed it. Um, But I want to discuss this morning under uh, our text for the morning, which is not according to the bulletin, but it's actually going to be Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, which you can be turning there. I want to discuss at the beginning of our time of studying scripture, uh, the question of the poverty of the church. You heard as I prayed this morning, uh, the, the quotes from scripture talking about the fact that God has chosen to show himself among the poor and the despised and the weak and the foolish and the stupid and babies and people that are not. And that this is his habit. Now, this morning, if you look around, you'll see that this is a room that is not. In other words, there's nothing about this room that's glorious. It doesn't remind you of the cathedrals in, um, in Europe, does it? You know, this is not Notre Dame, right? Thank you very much, dear brother. But really, this room is only a representation of the poverty of this church. But if you think about this sanctuary as being an intentional discipline, and it is. Those of you who have been here for years know that the location of this church, the building of the sanctuary, is an intentional discipline. Um, If you think, though, of... um, The whole Protestant world is being an intentional discipline. It will help you to understand the Reformation, because really the Protestant church is very poor. I've been told twice by journalists on the national level, once George Booker, the editor of The Layman, the Presbyterian Layman, and the second time, Joel Belts. They've both told me the same thing. It's the ironclad rule of investigative journalism. What is it? Follow the money. And it sounds crass to speak of the church this way, but just for a second, I want you to think about the money of the church and where that money is. Now, it used to be in the old days, you could talk about Rome's money and everybody would get all soft and say, yeah, that's why we're Protestants. But Today in America, let's be honest and say the money is not with the Roman Catholic Church. Whatever money they had is gone because of the sex scandals. So where is the money in America today in religion? Well, the money is with evangelicalism. That's where the money is. My father-in-law published his publishing company, the Left Behind series of books. And about five years ago, I read at that time that the capitalization of the Left Behind market was over one billion dollars. Now think about that. Boggles your mind. A billion dollars. 
And of course, this is just one series of books by LaHaye and uh, Jenkins. Then you go into the contemporary Christian music scene down in Nashville, and Heather and Doug can tell you about the money there, down in Franklin, other parts of the city. And then we move out to the salaries of pastors and the cathedrals today, which are being built by evangelical churches. They're, they're big box today, because we as evangelicals are said to have no taste. And so we just build things that are a mimicking of Lowe's or uh, of Menards. And uh, there is a lot of money in evangelicalism, in the publishing, in the music, in, in the conferences that are held, in the magazines in the beauty and handsomeness of the people that we have teach and preach to us. Just look at the books in a Christian bookstore, at the pictures of the people on the dust jackets who have written them, and you realize that an awful lot of the wealth of evangelicalism is how sexy the people that lead us are. Now, nobody ever says they're sexy. They say, isn't he handsome? But you get the point. The point is, we even are led by people that make us feel like we're really something. Right? Then, if you listen to Rome and the Vatican tell us how poor we are, because this is one of their central arguments for their own authority and the fact that they're the true keepers of Christendom. If you listen to them, they will tell you that our poverty is the fact that we are many instead of one. And this comes up over and over and over again when you read Roman Catholic doctrine. They say, you know, what a, what a disgustingly cheap and, 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 and tawdry counterfeit Protestant it is. What, what are you? You know, 10,000, 100,000? Look at how many you are. And we have to admit, even in Bloomington, how many different denominations are there? It's not enough to be a Christian church. You have to be, it's not, you know, this Christian that does this a cappella or that does have instruments or it's not enough to be Presbyterian. You have uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, which is one kind of Presbyterian with instruments. And then you have the Reformed Presbyterians, which are another kind without instruments. And so Rome looks at us and Rome laughs. Rome says, this is obviously an impoverished community. They can't marshal the strength to be respectable in the world. Look at us. We're one. And this is a consistent claim of Rome. We're one. Look at us. We're one. Now, how does the Roman Catholic Church claim that she's one? The way Rome claims this is Rome has the Pope. The minute you get rid of the Pope, Rome is 25 Googleplexes. Okay? She is infinitely fragmented and schismatic. Now, if you don't believe this, study the Middle Ages. The history of the Middle Ages can be summed up by saying that a particular order, a particular uh, religious group, was godly, was humble, was meek, gave themselves to the work of God. And pretty soon the rich saw that they were particularly holy, and the rich began to inundate them with gifts financially. And they got corrupted, and there was a new order that was started. And this can be a summary of the history of the Middle Ages. The orders getting starting, being godly, then decaying, and then uh, because they're given money, and then a new order being started. And this is, this is, this is true still today. 
Mother Teresa left her order to go out onto the streets of Calcutta. And then Mother Teresa became the head of the Missionaries of Charity. And it was a new order. But even in doctrine, we look at Rome, and the doctrinal battles in Rome are every bit as complicated and sophisticated as the battles among Protestants. I read them. I read them constantly. They're coming out with a new statement about the doctrine of limbo. And guess what? The Roman Catholic Church is going to say soon that she was wrong on limbo. I've already read the document of the council, and the council says, you know, this doctrine is not in Scripture. They say this. But then they say, not to fear, the Pope never declared it to be dogma. You see? And so they can go ahead and change it because the Pope didn't speak ex cathedra about the doctrine of limbo, and so that can change. And yet they say that we're divided, that we're many, that we're a bunch of schisms and a bunch of schismatics, and then they claim to have uniformity, unity, to have the glory of being one. But then immediately they want to change the doctrine. They say, don't worry, our one did not declare it. It was, you know, part of the mass, and so we can move it to the side. And and his authority is not at stake. Recently I was reading an article uh, written in the Wanderer, a Roman Catholic Orthodox newspaper, where um, they were describing, and I've put it up on the blog, you can find it there, um, where they were describing... Uh, the church and what it is about the church uh, that is unique. And by church, they meant the Roman Catholic Church. And they were defending uh, the recent decree from Rome saying that uh, Protestants have something of God, but not at all what we have as Roman Catholics. In other words, really, Protestants are not a church. I mean, there's some sense in which you can say Protestants are a church. And then they went on and explaining this document of the Pope, they said that uh, one of the reasons Protestants can never be said to be the true church is that the Protestants don't have the sacraments. And what they mean by having the sacraments is that we Protestants do not believe that uh, when the bell rings or when I, you know, have a certain uh, saying that I do over the Lord's Supper here, that all of a sudden, the uh, the wine turns into the actual blood of Jesus and the bread turns into the actual body. And in this article, they explained that anybody should want to be a Roman, a Roman Catholic because they are allowed every day to come and to eat and to drink the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which Jesus said would give us eternal life. And then they said, who would not want this? Now, think about this. This means that one of the principal arguments for Rome, why they are the church and no Protestant church is, is that in Rome you can come every day to the church and you can eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says that this is how we are saved. Unless you eat and drink Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you shall have no part in me. Well, we want to have a part in Jesus, and so every day would be good. And so in this Roman Catholic newspaper, I've read through the years often the discussion of the question of whether it's all right for us to take the Lord's Supper, or what they call Mass, twice a day. Because after all, 
If that's how we're saved, wouldn't twice a day be better than once a day? I read an article this last week talking about how Mayor Richard Daly I, King, King Richard I, uh, so those of us that remember Mike Royko and all that, King Richard I went to Mass every day. Well, what do you think King Richard, Richard II does? He's not like his father. He doesn't go and eat and drink every day. And so right at the center of the Roman Catholic Church is the doctrine of Mass and the doctrine that if we go every day, that this will save us more. All right? Now, where did that doctrine come from? Where did it come from? Jesus leave a command that we were to take daily communion. When Jesus handed the bread and he handed the wine to the disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper, all right, did they think it was his body and blood? <laughs> you know, here's the plate. Jesus is handing it. This is my body. I mean, think about that. I want to read a short statement by probably the most famous convert to Rome over the last 150 years. And his name is John Cardinal Newman. A Brit, an Anglican, he converted. And after he converted, this is what he said. After his conversion, Newman described his state of mind coming into Rome as, quote, coming into port after a rough sea, unquote. And he continues saying, quote, and my happiness on that score remains to this day without interruption, unquote. Before his conversion, Cardinal Newman did not believe in transubstantiation. That is, that this turns literally into the body and blood of Christ as we take it. Before it, Newman did not believe in transubstantiation, but he says, quote, I had no difficulty in believing it as soon as I believed that the Catholic Roman Church was the oracle of God. And that she had declared this doctrine to be part of the original revelation. So today, if you want to know why to go to Rome instead of to a Protestant church, Rome will tell you that you go to Rome because there every day you may eat the body and blood of Christ, and that's how we're saved. And if you ask them how that works and where they got it, they will tell you that the church gave it to you. Cardinal Newman says very clearly, I had trouble with this prior, but after the church had declared it, and that was enough for me. And if you follow the church, where do you end up? You end up at the Pope. Don't you? And so really, across the ages, we look to the Pope, and it's very secure to look to the Pope, isn't it? I can remember being a young man and having this perpetual pilgrimage for a father. But I didn't want any father. What I wanted was a father who was sinless. I wanted a father who would never let me down. So, you know, you'd have a youth pastor, and he'd be father for a while, and then he'd let you down. And then you'd have a, 
you know, your, your, your preacher, and, and you'd follow him for a while, and he'd let you down. And then you'd go back to your dad and think, well, maybe he's the one I'm supposed to have, and then he'd let you down. And so you'd go back to your youth pastor, and then you'd start reading. You'd think, well, if he isn't living, maybe he's dead. You know? And you'd start reading, and pretty soon you'd find out that the people that are writing are sinners. Can you understand how we get the Pope? It's very easy to understand, really. And so why is there this perpetual search for someone that we can look to who will actually rescue us from the poverty of Jesus Christ? Let me read to you another excerpt. The only thing is it's going to take me. That's why I never have more than one quote in one document, because once I read the first one, I'm lost. Give me a second, probably. Please. Almost done. Well, I have to give up. It's probably better. Anyhow, what I was going to read was a section where it was talking about the poverty of the church. And I want to return to this theme so that we get the context for our, our text and the debate that has occurred over it through the years. Um, and it describes the poverty of the church in what? It describes the poverty in her architecture. Nothing in the Protestant world comes close to Rome. But that's kind of a cheap way of making the case. The real poverty in the Protestant church is, in fact, her liturgy. The poverty is this table. We don't claim that as you eat the body literally and drink the blood literally of Christ, that this literally saves you. We don't tell anybody they should come here because only here can you have the true body and blood of Christ. So that's poor. And then we have the poverty of preaching. But notice that our preacher doesn't have a uniform that commands respect. Not all dressed up with stoles and all kinds of externalities that claim my authority. And I don't get up in front of you and, and ask you to refer to me as the very right reverend. Right? I don't wear my doctoral hood, do I? Now, think about Rome. From the architecture outside to the entire apparatus, it makes a claim of being wealthy. Now, all that wealth is supposedly to the glory of Jesus Christ. But you know what Joel Belts and George Booker said, follow the money. If we follow the money in evangelicalism, we can follow it in Rome. And the money in Rome accrues to the Vatican. As a matter of fact, so much so that the Vatican claims to hold, this is doctrine, the treasury of merit. And in that treasury of merit, to have accrued wealth there by works of supererogation. These are works that are so far beyond the call of duty that they end up not being needed by the person that does them themselves, and so they go into the treasury, and the church has the right to sell them. 
All right? And those works can then be applied to other individuals to what? Well, to get them out out of purgatory more quickly. After all, what was the Reformation over? It was over indulgences. Tonight we're going to read most of the 95 theses out loud. (laughs) And the reason it was such a scandal was Tetzel was selling salvation. And guess what? At the same time, the Sistine Chapel was being built. And we go there like good Protestants and walk in and say, I wish my church was this wealthy. Well, do you know whose back it was built on? It was built on all those suckers that went and and, and followed Tetzel's instructions that the minute they put a coin in the box, that souls would spring free from purgatory. And then you go and look at that, that wealth, at that art, at the Sistine Chapel, and you think, man, I wish... I wish we had such wealth and such beauty and grand. I wish Michelangelo had worked for the Reformation instead of Rome. Well, he could have. Calvin could have come up with the same apparatus. Calvin could have been the Pope. Now, all of this, the unity of the church and the Pope, declaration ex cathedra of infallible doctrine, the sacrament that turns into the body and blood of of our word, which you take every day and it will save you. The plenary indulgences that are still sent out from Rome today. All of this. The priest not saying God forgives you, but I forgive you in confessional. The rights at the end of life that assure your transfer smoothly. All of this apparatus flows out of the text that we're reading today, which is Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 20. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And here it comes. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. A little earlier in the chapter, the disciples are watching as the crowds, particularly the religious leaders, are saying to Jesus, give us a sign. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. You're not going to be given any sign but the sign of Jonah. And so when it comes to the masses and when it comes to the religious leaders, The hankering after a sign, after healings, after words of knowledge, after all this, uh, you know, uh, what did they call the beginning of the war? Shock and awe. (laughs) You know, the spiritual shock and awe. He says, this is wickedness to seek after a sign. You're not going to get anyone but the sign of Jonah, meaning three days Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Jesus would be in the grave three days, but then he would rise from the dead. 
And then he goes privately to his disciples, turning away from the masses, and he asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples answer a variety of answers. Some, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. We already know that Herod thought that John the Baptist had returned from the dead. He had a bad conscience because he'd killed him. And he thought, this is who Jesus is, all right? And having heard the people strike out, Jesus then turns the questions directly to the disciples. Instead of, who does everybody say I am? Now he says, who do you say that I am? Verse 15. And Simon Peter, verse 16, answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, when he says you are the Christ, he's saying you're the Messiah. You are the promised one. Isaiah spoke of him saying that he will carry our griefs. He will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Peter is confessing that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he is the one who will save his people from their sins. But then he also says the son, what? Peter says the son of the living God. Now, how did Jesus respond to Peter's confession? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, what does this teach us? Well, this teaches us that any of us who have faith do not have faith because of the work of a preacher or because of the sacrament, the Lord's Supper or baptism or because we happen to read the right book at the right time, or because it doesn't matter what the reason is. None of us have faith in Jesus because of anything human. It makes it very clear here that flesh and blood, anything that we can look at and see and touch here on earth, is not what gives us faith. But instead, it says what? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but who did reveal it to him? My Father who is in heaven. And so the very fact that he was able to confess, to say publicly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, was a gift from God. Now the reason this is an encouragement to us is that if if it's the result of us working hard for it, studying, um, you know, crawling on our knees up the cathedral steps, having the right parents and godly grandparents, if it's the result of us having the right preacher, it's our work. But if it's a gift from God, then we can relax. This is what Rome is afraid will do. But we can relax because God has revealed it to us. It's not something that we can purchase with indulgences. It's not something that by making certain pilgrimages like to Fatima or to Lourdes that we're going to get. It's not something that comes in more and more each time we drink this. It's a revelation of God. God is the giver. And we see this theme again and again and again in Scripture. We see that God gives the gift, and we also see to whom it is that God gives this gift. We see that uh, eternal life and faith are not things that are given to those who are Uh, wise in the world's eyes, but rather to the poor and to the weak and to those who are very, very limited. Um, And so Peter here is told not to take pride in his confession, but rather to recognize that God had given him the ability to see the truth and to confess that truth. Uh, 
Now, what was the truth that Simon Peter confessed? Well, if we break it down, it's two things, very simple. First, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and second, that he's the son of the Most High God. And we will see Jesus being the Messiah and Jesus being the Son of God as being at the center of a number of texts in Scripture that connect this confession, this belief, to having eternal life. In John 20:31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In Hebrews 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. First John 4:15. whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 1 John 5, 5, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So what is the most perfect, the supreme gift that any man can be given? It is to be able to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the most precious gift that we can be given. And if you are able to join in that confession, remember... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It was the gift of God. So don't take any credit and don't give any credit to any other person. It's God. So Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, this is the center of the conflict. The whole apparatus flows from the Pope. Now, let me make one thing clear at the very beginning. We do not address the doctrine of the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church because we believe in a church that doesn't have authority. <laughs> How many times I've heard former Catholics say that the thing they couldn't put up with in the Roman Catholic Church was the Pope. Well, come on, I recognize that, and that's not conversion. <laughs> All that is is just being a good American. We don't like authority. And if you have to choose between the Protestant church where there isn't any authority and the Roman Catholic church where the Pope's the authority, I mean, that's an easy one, isn't it? <laughs> you just go over to Catholic, I mean, excuse me, to Protestantism, right? And then you're done with the Pope, you're done with authority. No, no, no. The Bible's very clear that there is authority in the church. But the question here is, if you go on and read in the text, you'll see that there are very, very clear statements of authority in this text, aren't there? <clears throat> Look at verse 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so we see right away there's a very clear connection of this rock and authority. What are keys? They're authority. Yesterday or day before yesterday, I'm, I'm 
talking to Dave Carell, and he shows me this picture of the building. And it has different colors. And he's, he's telling me how he plans to divvy up who gets what keys. Now, that's serious authority. You know, that some people will have keys just to the zone around the hallway, but not to the, to the gym. Some people will have keys to certain rooms and the hallway, but not the gym. Some people will have the keys to certain rooms and the hallway and certain offices, but not the gym and not certain other rooms. And then, guess who will have keys to the whole shebang? <laughs> It's a lead pipe cinch, Dave Carell will. <laughs> and it's also lead pipe cinch, the, the head deacon will, right? I will. <laughs> I will have keys to the whole building. Now, that's an inconvenience as well as a convenience. It's an inconvenience in that if anybody has a key they don't have, they will come to me, Right? So keys are authority. Clearly in the text, immediately there's a connection of this confession and of the rock with authority. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So it's not that we reject the Pope because we reject authority, is it? And those people who talk to you about how they left Rome because of the authority of the Pope, what you need to do is have a conscience and realize that immediately you should be fair and say to them, well, you know, there's just as much authority in the Protestant church. Because there is. The, the Protestant church was not a great rabble-rousing war against all kinds of authority. The Protestant reformers talked about the three spheres of authority, the church, the home, and civil society. And on my way here today, I almost got a ticket, and my heart stopped. And I won't even go into why. But he didn't give me a ticket. He didn't even stop me. And I'm so grateful that the civil authority took pity on me this morning. I went through the light. Entered yellow. But it was red before I got done with that intersection. There was a deputy sheriff sitting right there watching me. And that was rebellion. I knew I should stop, but I was late. Why was I late? Well, that's the cop's fault. He should have pity on me, right? No, that's my fault. It's not my wife's fault. It's my fault. And so when we look at this text, we see there's a very clear connection between the rock that the church will be built on and the authority that is given to that rock. Now, the question is, the question has always been whether that rock is Peter the man or whether that rock is Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And the whole apparatus stands on the Rome saying that it is Peter who is the rock. And I want to quickly go through reasons that it's clear that it's not Peter that's the rock. It's the confession of Christ as the Messiah and the Son of the Most High God. First of all, the caveat at the beginning, this is not to be against authority. Second, the authority which is to be exercised in the church is not the authority of aristocrats or blue bloods. God his forbidden domination is the method of leadership in the church. You remember the disciples had a dispute 
at the Last Supper, it says in Luke 22:24, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. And this is the way authority in the church is supposed to be. Authority in the church is to be for service. The one who's greatest is the least. The one who's least is the greatest. There's an old ditty that goes, who builds to God and not to fame will never mark a building with his name. You've been in these churches. Absolutely everything in the church has a name on it. What is that? It's to call them benefactors. Campus Crusade years ago, I had a huge fundraising drive, and they were going to build a hall, and they were going to put around the hall the names giving certain sections of, 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 of a sort of domed kind of heavenly place to people who gave $100,000 or more, and their names would be written there. And this was a part of the appeal that would be taken to rich people. It was right there. I read it, all right? And you know how many churches have done this. You know, I go to you and I say, you know, uh, if you will give, uh, what, say, you know, $600,000, we will name this the Tim Bailey Gym, Right? The Dalai Lama, the whole city, has his name all over. And it's so sweet because, as Ben Crum has pointed out, um, at the same time we're having a play about him at South High School. Hello, Dolly. Have you seen that? All over town. (laughs) And he's traveling around in a motorcade. He has, like, presidential protection. And status. That's not to be the way Christians are. Okay? We believe in authority, but our authority is the authority of service. And so what this means is that if you have faithful authority, your faithful authority is going to be beaten up all the time, is going to be trampled in the dirt, is going to be poor, is going to be despised, is not going to have any of the world's respect. And you guys, how can I get it into your heads? We always are seeking for fathers who have riches. Okay, we don't have the Pope, but in in evangelicalism, we have Popes. In Presbyterianism and and the Baptist community, we have Popes, right? Al Moore's a Pope, right? No, he's a servant. And we have to discipline ourselves from our perpetual desire to lift one man up so we can feel richer. Well, look who our leader is, you know? It can't be that way. Jesus, though, could easily have made it clear that Peter was to be followed and obeyed. In other words, when they were striving to see which of them was the greatest, Jesus could have answered the question. And he could have said this, you want to know who among you will be the greatest? Look here, I've decided Peter will have this honor. And all of you are to follow him because I put my words in his mouth and he will speak to you in my behalf after I'm gone. It would have been so easy. There arose a striving among them as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus said, it's Peter. Now, you think I'm making this up, but would you stop for a second and think about the Old Testament and Moses? And would you realize that this is what happened to Moses? Moses 
did have the very words of God. And when people got irritated that Moses was the leader, what happened? When they tried to rebel against Moses, what happened? They were destroyed. In the Old Testament, this is how God did it. God put his words in Moses' mouth. God made it clear when people tried to, what is the book of Numbers? It's one endless repetition of the people rebelling against God in the form of his servant Moses and God disciplining them. So it's not that God can't work that way. It's that now he won't. He doesn't. He shall not. In other words, it's intentional with God that his church is poverty-stricken. Starting at the top. It's not a failure of Protestantism that we have many. It is actually the biblical principle. Because when we have many, then we are forced to cling to the Holy Spirit instead of to some visible manifestation of God that we can go and kiss. You know, I don't know what they kiss, but they kiss something on the Pope. You know, what would you think of me, people, if I stood here and I said, you know, come on, Dave, come on, come on, Dave. Right here. Well, the problem is that I, I'm not dressed right, right? I mean, people, come on. You go back to the reformers, and the reformers are lampooning, making fun of, ridiculing these things about Rome. And today we're so committed to getting along with each other that we, we don't ever want to think about making fun of anything that claims to be religion. But, you know, the smaller a thing is, the less you should ridicule it because it's just oppressive. But when something's huge and makes its claim on the basis of something that should be ridiculed, you have to ridicule it. It's absolutely absurd that people travel, make pilgrimages from all over the world to go to the very place that Tetzel's indulgence is built, to admire it and to say, oh, what glory, and to come home and write in the pages of Christianity today how impoverished culturally evangelicalism is. And they forget it's a principle. It's a principle. I go to these conferences where Presbyterians go on and on about how our architecture should speak of our God. I think, what has happened to us? What happened to the poverty of Protestantism? And there rose a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. What is the pope? And I honor this pope. He's the best one we've had in ages. So how could you be saying these things and honor the Pope? Because that man is owned by the false doctrine of his church. Don't ever forget that. No matter how much I respect him as a man, he's owned by his office. And his office is a charade. It is unbiblical. And yet it's what we as evangelicals hanker after. It's Billy Graham. It's who would it be today? Rick Warren. I mean, that's... You know who I want as a pope over evangelicalism, Protestantism today? You know who I want? I want Peter Akinola. How many of you know who Peter Akinola is? Well, I'll start out with he's black. 
And then I'll tell you that he's African. And then I'll tell you that he stood up against the entire apparatus of Anglicanism over sodomy. He said to the West, take your money, I don't want it. And that's the Reformation. That's the Reformation. Take your money, I don't want it. We'll be poor. We will have churches that don't even have banners, don't even have pictures. We'll go back to the beginning when we hid in little caves and rooms, when our people were buried secretly, when we used to be accused that we were having sexual orgies in our meetings because nobody saw what went on at the love feasts. It was poor. You know, there weren't a bunch of TV cameras, you know, broadcasting it to the world. And we had huge sanctuaries. And, and we talked about Rick Warren, literally. I run, I run, run souls. I run 30,000 people a Sunday. Does that sound like it will not be like this among you? We take the Pope, we take Rick Warren, we take Billy Graham, we take all these leaders, and then we begin to build cathedrals. And then we begin to fill them up with images. And then we begin to wear stoles and robes. And then we begin to have important groups of 50 of us that claim that we're going to reclaim true Christian faith for the nation and the Western world. And people, it was not to be this way among us. It was not to be this way. What about John Bunyan? What about pathetic Martin Luther? The world laughed at him then. Catholics still laugh at him today. As a matter of fact, in that article I was telling you about in The Wanderer, they actually referred to him as, quote, that weak man, Martin Luther, unquote. He was so weak. (laughs) Come on, people laugh. Martin Luther was weak. Here's what Martin Luther said. And you can tell why they called him weak when you hear this. And I hope I can find this. Yes, I can. Martin Luther, that weak man, said this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is as clear as day they have frequently urged and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony the testimony of Scripture. I cannot and will not retract. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Now, that's the poverty of Protestantism. And you can take your choice. You can choose Rome and its Pope. You can have what appears to be visible unity, oneness. You can have all the glory of Michelangelo. You can have the stoles and the mitres and the, the, the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. You can have a liturgy to kill for. They're still performing it at the music school. Right? Or you can have the word and the sacraments. And no voodoo over the sacraments. 
God working through them. Okay? And it's despised and it's poor. And you can hear the blowers and the planes. And I don't have the kind of lighting that I should have. And I'm not wearing a stole. But for heaven's sakes, people, that's a principle. (laughs) I mean, really, don't you realize that we could have gotten doctorates? Don't you realize that? When my brother went out to participate on the East Coast at a very important Presbyterian church and in an ordination service, he was told beforehand to make sure he showed up with a robe. And when he showed up, he was the poverty-stricken one among the pastors participating in that ordination because he didn't have a doctoral hood. Come on, people. If you have to get a doctorate because your profession requires one, God bless you. But don't you ever wear your hood when it's a claim to be superior to the people of God, to the children and to the babies and to the ignorant and to the poor. Because it will not be this way among us. He who will be greatest among you will be the servant of all. Yeah. Thank you, sweetie. I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. One final thing. Do you realize that right after Peter makes this profession and supposedly is made into the Pope, right afterwards Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to that very man? (laughs) Peter was a glorious guy. But he was gloriously awful. I'm going to read one more quote. This one not by Luther, but by William Tyndale. The one who really uh, was responsible for the vast majority of the King James Version, if you go back and compare the versions. William Tyndale says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. I guess you can tell where he's coming from. (laughs) And if God spares me, I will one day make the boy that drives the plow in England to know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. (laughs) As they would say, right on, dude. Listen, people, be poor. Don't try to be rich in religion. It'll get you nowhere. It just won't do it. Don't brag about who you know in evangelicalism. Don't say which seminary you went to. Don't parade your gown and your hood. Don't go seeking the metropolitan, the patriarch, the pope. Don't try to have a liturgy that makes you feel important, like you're going to a classical music concert. It doesn't mean that we glorify ugliness. But people, it does mean that we glorify poverty. And poverty to the world looks like ugliness. Come on, get it.